Hi, I'm Deb. This is Frankie V. I'm Grant. Hi, this is Phil. I'm Aaron. I'm Steven. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Matt. We're Tim and Terry. I'm Susan. Hi, this is Phil. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. It's easy. Just visit supportseminarydropout.com. Just go to supportseminarydropout.com. And I'm your host, Shane Blackshear. Interviews with leading Christian authors, leaders, and thinkers. Let's go. Well, my guests today are Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Ben and Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good yeah. to be with you. Thanks, Shane. It is good to be here. Um, well, why don't you, for the audience uh, who doesn't maybe know who you are, tell a little bit about who you are, what you're about, what you do. Well, I'll, I'll introduce Ben. Uh, oh. That's what doing and you introduce time. me. How's that? All right. All right, I wasn't ben, prepared for this, but Ben is a it. father of four, been married uh, at least twenty years, probably that's, more. That's usually my answer too. I can't remember. He he uh, co-founded Gravity Leadership. Uh, he co-founded the Table, uh, both seven years ago, and uh, the joy of his life is his six and a half pound dog Edith, who <laughs> has, I think, has more outfits than he does. <laughs> Uh, that's a, a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. So, yeah, so. Uh, yeah thanks, Matt. Um, Matt Tebby is a male model and a uh, hand model. Knuckle. Particularly, <laughs> particularly the knuckles. It's is very specific. That's, yep. Very niche, He's got great but knuckles. Great knuckles. Once every seven years, I get a gig yeah. in Slovakia. It's great. <laughs> no, uh, Matt also co-founded Gravity and The Table. The Table's our, our church here in Indianapolis. Um, Gravity is the organization that we started to coach and train um, Christians to center their lives in the love of God um, uh, and their leadership. And um, Matt lives in the Indianapolis area. Matt's got two kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they're ages, I'm going to guess here, 13 <laughs> and 10. They're 13 and 10. Close, but you're around my kids multiple times a week, 14 uh, and 10. But 14 and 10. Let's say, hey, look at there. Yeah, I was super close. Uh, traditionally, I'm bad at guessing kids' ages, but uh, I feel like I feel pretty good about that one. Uh, and been married to Sharon for 21 years. Close. How was that? 20, it, 20 some it's years. It's been 22, but, it, but it's mm-hmm. been such bliss. But it's it been so blissful. Like it just feels like 21. <laughs> Uh, so that's, uh, Matt, uh, Matt also has a dog. I wouldn't mm-hmm. call this dog the, 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 uh, what did you say my dog was? The, the joy of, of your life. The <laughs> joy of my life. Uh, but it, it, uh, it's, it, it is a wonderful dog named Jovi. Um, yeah. it's a big, uh, Cocker Spaniel. Uh, he's, uh... <laughs> no, she's not. Oh, sorry. No, I was thinking of my dog, uh, Golden Retriever. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I was, for some reason I conflate those kinds of dogs in my head. We had a cocker spaniel. Uh, I think up. I overestimated how much you know about me, Ben. Mm, yeah, sorry. Just, <laughs> you got to give me a heads up. So, anyway. Anywho. I think every time I, in, I interview more than one person, I'm going to have them only introduce each other and not themselves <laughs> yeah, from now on. That's it's pretty entertaining. That's a pretty good party trick you guys just did. That's it's pretty great. I know a lot of guys who they don't know their own children's ages, so I'll give Ben a, a pass. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Vaguely aware of some small humans living in the house. Yes. So uh, I think a lot of people probably know you guys from the Gravity Leadership podcast. It's been going on for several years now and really fantastic. 
I was, I said one time, uh, well, let me say this. When I, when I, I think I knew you guys before I knew gravity leadership. And Mm -hmm. when I heard the name gravity leadership, I was like, all right. I mean, that's where you want to want to take this. Because uh, when I think of leadership, I think of like, you know, 21 laws of leadership type leadership stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, I gave the podcast a try because I thought, I mean, I like these guys. How bad can it be? Um, and it has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. Um, mm. I really appreciate how, like, there's a real aim like with my podcast it's like what am i into this week you know and it's all over the place mm-hmm. with yours i feel like there's a real a real telos going on like you're taking us somewhere on this journey and i've always really appreciated that um so i you guys know this i have been a part of a gravity leadership cohort uh that you you know as a part of gravity leadership and then i've taken that, uh, the, the material and I've led, uh, two different groups of guys at my church through the gravity leadership stuff. Uh, so I'm pretty familiar. You could call me a fan. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this, it's funny cause I had always wondered like, are they going to make this into a book that, you know, a traditional book, you've got the workbook that we go through. Um, and here it is. You've done it. Uh, having the mind of Christ, eight axioms to cultivate a robust faith. I'm not getting it in the shot there. There it is. Um, how did the how did the axioms come about? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll I'll, I'll take a stab at this. Um, we we were coaching people <clears throat> without axioms. And Shane, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of uh, being misinterpreted or feeling like you're talking past somebody or you say something and they uh, completely miss what you meant um, or you you go 20 or 30 minutes in a conversation and you realize, oh man, uh, we were working from totally different assumptions. Well, we, we kept coming on uh, in these disconnects in our coaching where, for instance, we had people who operated from this just assumption. It, was, it wasn't even named, but it just kept showing up, popping up like, um, you know, we live in this two-story universe, and we are here on earth, and God's in heaven, and we need to figure out a way to get God to show up. And if we can get God to show up, then God things can happen. But most of the time, we're kind of on our own, and we're hoping that he, like, you know, we're praying for, like, you know, the scraps from his table that maybe they'll, you know, rain down, like, a, a zap here and there. And, and and no one, most of the people who who live life with that imagination you know, they they didn't like raise their hand and accept that into their heart at some point. It just sort of lives there, you know? And we just started recognizing these these beliefs, these, we can maybe call them deep agreements that people have made that they don't even know they've made. And and once, once they were excavated and named, we're like, oh gosh, that was so helpful to get that on the table, right? And um, man, what if we, what if we kept track of these things that seem to interrupt or thwart our best intentions at discipleship? What if we kept track of them and then maybe evaluated them with like, well, how did Jesus see the world or see people? And so the axioms emerged just from us trying to, trying to discipleship people more faithfully, better, more effectively. And then uh, we, we, we put them together. They were really helpful to name for people. 
and then uh, we decided to unpack them and, and put them in the, this book. I think what's interesting about that is that you kind of, um, you came to these by f figuring out or hearing what's wrong. <laughs> like you kind of discovered the anti-axioms and then said, well, then what's the, what's the truth here, right? Like if we, if we live in this two-story world and we're like, we think God's got to show up and we know that's not true, then the truth is God is always present and at work. Yeah, I think that's the way that we stumbled into a lot of stuff that we do now through gravity um, is just by kind of bumping our noses against glass doors, you know, not sort of not realizing there were issues until we realized there's issues. And then we're like, well, wait, what is this? And um, what, what, you know, what do we need to be clear about here? Um, and so, yeah, so the axioms emerged as um, not like doctrines you learn, but more like paradigms that, that you learn to inhabit, even though there's some of them are related to doctrines, right? I mean, God's omnipresence, right? For example, God is always present at work. So, but we found that from a paradigm level, it's possible for you to assent to some doctrine while also living your life as if God is somewhere else for most of your life. You know, I was thinking, especially as I was reading your, uh, the introduction to the book, um, there's been historically like such, uh, and by historically, I mean like in the last 50 years in white America, um, like an overemphasis on, on doctrine and right belief. And I feel like we've kind of now we're kind of trying to course correct and kind of pay a little bit of attention to our orthopraxy as well. Like the things that we do in our, in our habits. And, you know, it's been said that we, uh, we don't so much believe our ways into right behavior, but behave into right beliefs. I'm probably butchering that. And I love all that. And I'm thankful for, for all that. I feel like something you're doing is saying, yes, but there's actually a step before this. Whereas if we, um, if we go into the beliefs, uh, but our belief is about a, a, a messed up God, then that actually won't help us into the right behaviors and beliefs. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I think I hear what you're saying, Shane. I think, um, you know, one of the things we, we want to keep, I mean, one of the parts about our training, you know, this, uh, because you've been through it, um, is that there is a, there is a sense in which discipleship has to be more about belief and behavior. And so I, I'm thankful as well that we're started talking about orthopraxy, uh, as well. But I think there is a diving below the surface that needs to happen to say, it's not just about sort of checking the right doctrinal boxes or checking the right behavioral boxes, um, but that there's something more to being a human than thinking things and doing things. Um, and so the, the, the work that we're trying to do with paradigms is inhabit, learn to inhabit our uh, bodies, the way that our bodies navigate the world. And that's not just, that's more than behavior. That, that also has to do with desire. It has to do with relationships. It has to do with, um, you know, uh, a sense of communion with others and, and with God. And so I, I do think that what we're trying to do is to point out the fact that you can't just add some good behaviors to your good doctrine and, and really lean into this thing called the Christian life, that there is something more required that we have to dive into the depths of our own souls we have to discover what we want and have to learn how to name those things. 
Um, and I think as we do that, as we learn how to be honest and, and give ourselves permission to be honest uh, about those things, I think then we begin to discover how we actually relate to God. And um, that can that can be a huge uh, stepping stone for, for a lot of people in their spiritual journey, just to just get honest about that stuff. I mean, I think a lot of us who grew up in evangelicalism have come around to discover a more contemplative tradition. And, and I think that what I'm seeing is um, it doesn't do me a lot of good to spend a lot of time in uh, contemplative uh, meditation or, or silence in an effort to get to know a mean and vindictive God more. It's like, like I really, it really does. It matters what I believe about this God before I spend time with him, you know? And so it really matters that if I'm, I have to be getting to know the God who is really makes it all about love, for instance. Yeah. 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 And this was a, this was a pretty scandalous thing for me, you know, um, Shane, that I realized that I, I had belief, I had the things I told myself I believed about God, and then I had what I actually believed in my bones about God, you know? And I, uh, and it really did come down to love. It really came down to, do I, do I know what, do I know how love works? And do I trust that God is love? And for me, the test was, how do I, uh, for me, the test was, and this is one of the exercises in the book, is just notice, notice when I'm aware of my own badness. And that could be, you know, saying screw it and doing something wrong or f- being foolish and looking embarrassed or um, it could be any number of things, right? Uh, some, some woundedness from my past coming up and me feeling depressed or anxious. Um, how did I experience God in that moment? You know? And f- for the most part, for the most part, when I experienced badness either in me or around me, uh, it, a God of love wasn't the God I was experiencing, it was a distant God or a disappointed God or a, a God that was losing his patience or, you know, you know, begrudgingly uh, forgiving me, you know, based upon what Jesus did for me, you know. And, and I realized, man, if, I, if love isn't, if, if my body, if my bones, if my subconscious doesn't know what love is, then it doesn't matter how I define it. It just doesn't matter. Um, what, what matters is, uh, can I live in love? Can I put on Christ, right? These metaphors that are deeply like, you know, ontological rather than prefrontal cortex stuff. And uh, so that for me was one of the reckoning moments of, yeah, I'm, I don't want to just throw ideas at the surface, but I actually want, I actually want to know something of love on, uh, on the interior, on who I am, so that when I'm quiet, I can sit in love, right? In the presence of love. One of the things that you guys say a lot, and this phrase has come to mean a lot to me is, um, what if I act as if this is true? And I think that that's a real component for, of faith, uh, at least in my life, is because everything within me may say that it's, my feelings may say that it's not true. Um, but if I can say... Man, that the testimony, the picture of God as revealed through Christ in Scripture is a very loving God. 
is a very uh, is a god who puts love in the center. And maybe I don't feel like that's true today, but what if I got up and acted as if it was? If I went through my day just assuming maybe on faith that it is true that this god is about love, then maybe that kind of changes some things for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean that's a phrase that we got from Willard um we, we, and we owe a huge debt uh, to Willard, Dallas Willard is uh, who I'm talking about, um, for a lot of the spiritual formation stuff that we've learned. But um, I think he says in The Divine Conspiracy, to believe something is to act as if it's true. And um, that has become, like you said, Shane, like a real paradigm for us to, to say. And it's it's not quite the same thing as like fake it till you make it. It's sort of like that. Um, but the goal here is not to... It's a bit more um, gentle, I think, than what a lot of us think of when we think of fake it till you make it. It's not like punching ourselves in the spiritual kidneys until we, you know, like get it right uh, or like striving really hard to feel differently about God. But it's just a real gentle one step at a time, you know, like it, and so even even maybe saying like, I'm going to live my day as if God is, you know, maybe that's too much. It's like, well, how about how about just in this situation? where I just realized that, you know, like Matt said it earlier. So, for example, when I screw up, what what if instead of beating myself up, what if I just interrupt that pattern? What if that's not required of me? What if that's not going to help me? What if instead love is and, and, and graciousness is available to me? What would it look like for me to receive that, like right now? And then I can make another choice, you know, in another minute and probably make a few more mistakes. But there's this real gentle sense, and, and it, we try to make it very curious and open, open-hearted, open just to say, hey, what would, it, what would you lose if you just tried to act as if it's true that God, you know, was, was love? And this is another reason that we, we always come back to, we try to bring the, these conversations all happen. They don't happen in the abstract. So in our training, they're very concrete. And so we train people to recognize, you know this, Shane, we train people to recognize what we call Kairos moments. Just like, here's where I'm noticing something going on for me. And so it's not just how do I believe that God is love in the abstract, but how do I learn to notice what's happening in my own life, in my own feelings, my desires, my relationships, my frustrations, the things that make me angry, the things that make, bring me joy. Um, how do I learn how to pay attention to that and discern and uncover how God is at work in the midst of that, proclaiming good news to me and inviting me to, to inhabit to, to his kingdom more, more fully, to more deeply participate in the life that he shares with us. So it's all very concrete um, and it's all very sort of one step at a time. And it's all very gentle and curious and, and open-hearted. It's meant to be. Hmm. Well, we've strongly hinted at the first axiom, which is <laughs> it really is all about love. That's my phrasing of it. I can't remember the exact phrasing. Um, yes. What are, for you, what are maybe the your favorite axioms or the ones that have meant, uh, had the most transformational power for you personally? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, a number of the axioms are about love. Um, even the ones that don't mention love. For instance, one of the axioms is God, <laughs> this is me rewording it, right? God really is like Jesus. Um and um, but I so I think I think getting clearer for me on how love works 
you know, Shane, you see me talk about how things work a lot in, in public. And I think it's because we're not talking about what does love mean or how do you define love. But when you talk about how something works, you're talking about that it has a moral logic. It's got a way of being. Inside of love, some things are good that wouldn't be good outside of love. And some things are bad that wouldn't be good outside of love. Um, and, and maybe that's not the same as, for instance, um, control. How does control work? Well, some, t- some of the ways control works, many of the ways control works, is outside of the moral logic of love. And so, for me, uh, that's been provocative for me in my parenting, as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, uh, in my own internal, the things, I, the things I perpetuate and give space for in my mind, etc. And then I would say one that's really connected to that, the one that we wrote for this book, it, it, I don't think it was in the curriculum, Shane, when you went through it, is Axiom 7, that uh, God's love always reckons with power. And I, I think that in the last seven years, that's, be, that's increasingly been presenting itself as something that needs to be named, and I was unable to name it. And, uh, you know, Jesus helped me name this, but also, you know, again, people giving feedback and saying, uh, see this, or that doesn't make sense to me, or, uh, or missing people, or finding alignment in surprising places. And so, I think... I think those two axioms are really important, transformational for me. Yeah, uh, I would echo that. Um, and I, I'd just maybe say that the one axiom that I, I think I come back to this one again and again, this was a just one of the biggest paradigm shifts for me in my whole faith, um, uh, was the axiom two, God is always present at work, um, which again, it sort of feels like, well, well, duh. You know, like a lot of these axioms feel like duh. Um, and so we're not like, you know, this isn't like new information, but I think the reason that this has been so transformational for me is that um, one of the things I began to see about the way that I inhabited my faith is that I had assumptions. I didn't realize they were assumptions, but I had assumptions about what God would be doing if God was here, if God was able to use God's power fully. Like there were assumptions I had about that that caused me to act and pray and lead in certain ways to try to sort of get God to do something or get God to prove that, you know, God was here and God was available. And I think this, this axiom of just the, the gentle, curious um, question kept coming back to me. Okay, what if God is here already? What if God is working already? And it's just in ways that I don't perceive and don't realize well, then my prayer can change. I can relax a little bit. Um, usually the thing that I'm afraid of, I don't need to be afraid of. I can just let go of that a little bit. And I can say, my prayer changes to, God, show me how you're at work. I trust you're here, but this is hard, or this is sad, or I, I hate this, or this is tragic, you know? Um, and you're not doing what I want you to do. But my prayer can change into those prayers of lament. My prayer can change into a prayer of help me see how you're working here. Uh, yeah. Because here's what I'm experiencing right now. Yeah, so. I just had a I just had lunch with uh, a friend who's 48 and single. And she is uncovering a lot of anger and sadness that she's single. 
And um, for a very long time, outside of her, the churches she's been a part of, and inside of her, the the assumption or the question was, God is present at work when you find a spouse. Or God isn't present at work when you love being single. And you can just date Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and what she was been reckoning with is, um, God's present and work in my singleness right now is me having the courage to really face the deep longing I have to be wanted by somebody in marriage and not have it. And I think that part of this axiom, too, opens up our imagination to, yes, new creation is a sure and future hope when every tear will be wiped away. But sometimes God's presence and work now is not just to wipe away tears, but it's to enable them, you know? It's... um. It's not just to say, cheer up, chap, you've got other friends when Lazarus dies. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, I, I want to make sure that we're naming, too, that, like, there's a strong, and this goes into kind of the, the thing, the living as though it's true, Ben, that you were talking about earlier. There's a strong um, uh, cultural habit in the evangelical church's chain that you referenced earlier of what we talk about in the book of spiritual bypassing, where we actually use the Bible to avoid hard things in us and hard things outside of us. And so, part of God's presence and work that uh, even, even an hour ago at lunch I was experiencing with my friend was her reckoning with maybe God's presence and work here is about me telling the truth about my desires and him, and him echoing that in like some longing and mourning, which as we record this, we're in Advent. And so, very appropriate for that. So, I just want to append that as well. Does that make, does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can remember after the uh, election in 2016, and there was a real, um, uh, there was a real contingent of people online saying things like, hey guys, God's got this. Like, no need to worry. You know, God, God's in control. Mm-hmm. And I had this vision of like um, a Jesus uh, sweating blood in the garden and, you know, like a, a middle class white guy walking up to him and being like, hey, buddy, God's got this. Like, why are you, what's all the fretting yeah. for, man? Come on now. Cheer up, buttercup. Stiff upper lip. Remember, God's in charge, you know? Yeah. Je- so Jesus shows us how to fret in a way, you know, and gives us permission to, to be human. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, that. Yeah, that. Yeah, there's there's so many un- assumptions like that. I think that get uncovered when we when we take this axiom seriously, um, where yeah, God God was you know with Jesus in the garden, um, but it was actually important for Jesus, you know, to you know that wasn't Jesus being insufficient or you know insufficiently content or happy or trusting. That was Jesus full of trust, full of faith, engaging with God in that moment, right? Yeah. And that, that's the thing that, yeah, so many of us, like you were saying, in the, in the American church, in the evangelical church, uh, we've just never learned how to do. We've assumed it was a sign of unfaithfulness um, or a sign of some sort of spiritual deficiency on our part. One of the, one of the axioms that's meant so much to me is that um, God meets us in our me- messy reality, um, 
and I've actually kind of seen that in a, in a twofold way. And I wonder if the second one, you guys didn't truly uh, mean for it to be this way. But the, the first one is what, what, you know, what I think you mean is like in our, in our sin and even like the really bad sin that we see, like we're not, um, we don't need to like get out of that before God can deal with us. Um, like if I just get my act together, then maybe I can kind of commune with God, but God actually, actually meets me there. Um, and, and if he didn't, he would probably never, uh, commune with me at all. (laughs) Um, and, and then the second way that I, I think a lot about that is that, um, I often want to live in non-reality, um, and God won't meet me there. <laughs> like I want to kind of live in in uh, the fantasy land where things are not as they are, um, but God wants to meet us in reality, <laughs> not not the fake world that I make up for myself and the the things that I choose to believe because they're convenient. You know, if I want to meet, if I want to believe that the world is a meritocracy and everything I've gotten is because I'm just so awesome, um, it's, I, I feel like that's a kind of turning away from God and God's reality because God is, God is, if I think part of God is being the most real thing. Um, and, and that's where God is. And when we choose to not live in that, we are choosing to kind of turn away from, from God and who God is. Yeah, I mean, I referenced this earlier, Shane, but I think, yeah, I think what you're saying is right on, and I think it it's something that we don't, I, I think there's a, a lot of uh, different influences and reasons why we're not good at that. You know, I remember, I remember reading The Life of a Saint, I think it was John Owen, um, who was a Reformed um, uh, saint from, I believe, Oh gosh, I'm not going to guess the century. Anyway, I was I remember reading about his life that he had 12 children and seven of them died uh, before they reached first grade. And I remember like this this was right when my son was born about uh, 14 years ago. 14 Ben, 14 years ago. And I put the book down and I I remember I remember just having this sense of like what would it be like to lose seven children before the age of 7? And that the being present to that kind of suffering, that kind of loss, that kind of grief as just a normal part of life. And, you know, I think all of us suffer. I mean, I lost my father-in-law a month ago. I know many of your listeners who are listening right now are dealing with very real things. But part of our, part of the, maybe the modern um, malady that we experience is that we have created a lot of ways to insulate us from suffering. Like we... You know, I'm sitting, it's, it's 32 degrees outside right now and raining, but I'm in a nice 69 degree room, you know, and I've got my really nice ergonomic chair that helps my back pain, you know. There's just all kinds of ways that aren't even wrong and bad, but then we, we don't develop, we don't develop out of necessity, out of survival to meet with God in these dark places that we can't, there's no thermostat to fix this, you know. Um, and I think that that, we, our faith isn't as robust, it isn't as um, hardy as it could be if we had to deal with that. That's one of the things I'm thinking about as you share that. Yeah, and I'll add too, I, th- I think you're right, Shane, that like some of the fantasies that we believe, like you mentioned meritocracy, right? Um, 
some of those fantasies are also ways to insulate ourselves from God um, and, and from God's presence. And it's not like we have to have a perfect vision of, we all have these probably fantasies and you don't realize they're fantasies until somebody, some life event or some suffering or someone teaching you, you know, or listening to someone's story until something exposes it. But that's the crux right there is when something exposes it, do you double down out of fear of the discomfort of changing that story of, of believing a different story or do you open up to, Oh my gosh, I might be wrong about this. I don't know what this means for me. This is deeply uncomfortable for me. And I think one of the reasons this axiom works in the way that you're talking about it, Shane, is that this can be some added confidence that I can, I can lean into this, the, the, this discomfort that I'm experiencing as I learn that, you know, meritocracy perhaps is not <laughs> everybody's experience in America, right? Um, that there's marginalized uh, people who, you know, really can't work hard enough to, to get all the things that, that, say, a white person can get. Um, and so the, the deep, facing that deep discomfort, um, I think one of the things that it has helped me to do some of that work is knowing that that, that actually is a holy place. Uh, because God sanctifies it with God's presence right there to say, I'm meeting you here in the midst of this. This is actually a beautiful and glorious thing uh, when people repent. It's, it's just because they're learning what's real and learning to live in reality. Um, and so it's a it's a glorious thing because, you know, as you said, God is the most real thing. I, I hesitate to call God a thing a little bit, you know, but... Um, we can be slightly heretical. Most real reality? Yes, right? Yeah, I don't know how to say okay, it. Okay, yeah, maybe. Yeah, there okay, you go. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Thanks, Shane. Um, I appreciate you rescuing. <laughs> <laughs> Got your back, Ben. <laughs> yeah. No, I, but I understand what you're, what you're meaning, obviously, that, that yeah, that God, God is real. Um, and God, um, God knows that it's a blessed thing to live in reality, even when that reality is uncomfortable, or filled with suffering, uh, that it's actually more blessed to be in that reality because again, that's, that's where God is. So Matt, you mentioned you guys added axiom seven, God's love always reckons with power. And um, so I was, you know, paying a special, special attention to that chapter. And I, that chapter has a distinction of being one that, that everyone likes and no one has a problem with at all, which is nice. Good, good job pulling that off you guys. Yeah, yeah, it was a great uncontroversial chapter. Um, this is news to you, me. You know, the ironically, the section in there that I I don't know if I'd say I had the hardest problem with, but I wrestle with the most is you were talking about the example of um, how you try to embody that with your children. And that is uh, so that that feels so incredibly complex. I was I think about this all the time. Um, my kids almost never consent to bedtime, um, and they almost never consent to eating vegetables. You know, and so yes. I wrestle with um, yeah, that actually that, but also like what that kind of represents in the in the larger thing. Like if we take those paradigms, you know, and. I guess I'm wrestling with questions of, is it, is it the amount of power or is it the kind of power? Uh, I've been yeah. all over the map with the power thing. Like there was a time you get, you can find recordings of me on my own podcast, um, advocating not voting and then, um, 
something happened in 2016 that made me really rethink that. But yes, um, yes. I, I, but I just wonder how you have wrestled with that and what that looks like for you. Yeah. So this chapter was twice as long when we first wrote it, and we had to cut out like seven thousand words, and it was a I I cried over each letter mm. uh, because there's so much to say here, and there's so many. We have to speak with wisdom here and not knowledge, right? So every child is different. And if love is going to reckon with power, we can't make a list of 12 rules on how to love our kids. Uh, And they can't apply to every kid, right? One kid doesn't eat their vegetables because they have a, a sensory affective disorder in their mouth. And it literally like his nails on a chalkboard to them. Whereas another one is just trying to stick it to you because you didn't buy them Oculus for Christmas, you know? <laughs> and so like, it, why, why doesn't a kid eat their vegetables? And what's at stake for them? What's going on? But I'll, I'll say this. That we, use, we, use, um, we say that we have to reckon with power, which means recognize it, discern it, to redistribute and redefine. So let me just take those two like words. Like redistribute means... Uh, empowering my kids with choice when it comes to what I want them to do. So giving, instead of just overpowering them, powering up, using punishment as leverage to push them towards what I want them to do, coercion, I, you know, I lean towards more often in most situations, how's that for hedging my bets, that, uh, hey, you can choose not to eat your vegetables tonight. That's your choice. But that choice comes with these consequences. And so you have a choice between these consequences or eating those vegetables, right? And then whatever you decide to do, you own that. That's yours. That's yours, right? And the consequences aren't like, you know, you're grounded for 12 months. You know, the consequences are commiserate to the choice. You know what I'm saying? So it's, you try, I try to make it so that there's, I'm, I'm trying to form my child in good, but I want them to have, you know, when they're caught doing something that's wrong, instead of me just inventing a punishment, I say, well, look, this, do you understand why this can't happen again? Or why this is a violation of our relationship? Or why, right, I want to trust you and I can't trust you anymore, or et cetera, et cetera. What do you think is an appropriate consequence for what you did? Why don't you just think about that for 30 minutes and then let's talk about it. So just even giving my kids some kind of agency in how they are going to rectify a situation that they contributed to screwing up, you know? Um, These are just little pieces, little artifacts of how I'm trying to redistribute the power in the relationship to them when I have to act, like you said, Shane, with some kind of responsibility towards you, you know? Um, you can't just not go to school. You have to go to school, right? How do I redistribute power when that's the relationship? And then redefine is a continual, like, you know, it's not about green beans, dude. It's not about green beans. What, What it's about is I, you've been given a gift. Your body is a gift. And if you just eat jalapeno Cheetos for every meal, this gift is going to break down and you're going to hate your life. And so how do you take care of your body in a way that's, I don't use this word because they're only 14 and 10, commiserate with your gift. You know, how do you, how, so here's what I want. 
how about let's you name five vegetables that you absolutely won't eat and i and i will not make you eat them but then uh here's a list of other vegetables that are good and you're going to pick five that you won't complain about if i make them right so so that it's not about green beans or not it's about you're learning to take care of your body and you're learning to cook what's you're learning to eat what's cooked for you and i'm not shoving food down your throat that makes you gag like for me that's a that's part of redistributing the power but also redefining like why is this even important to me and it's not just so you listen to me or so you stop making me angry right mm. Yeah. Or so we can get on from dinner and do what I want to do, which are mm-hmm. all not that's not love. But right. it's because I'm trying to help you grow up into a wise, healthy human being who yeah. values good things. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to recruit you into that. Yeah. Shane, does that does that make sense that how that I don't know kind of kind of plays out from time to time? Yeah, for sure, and I think that most of us you know, when I do something like when I make my kids help me clean up the house, um, it would be much more efficient and easier to just do it myself. But the reason we do those things is because we're hopefully making them into the kinds of people that that we want them to be, you know, the, the people who take care of their bodies and take care of their, their things and, um, you know, have lives that, uh, you know, honor Christ. And so, it's not the thing, it's the thing behind the thing. And I think we often we can forget that and get into power struggles and that never end well. I think that's why it's important to, to rec. This is part of the reason, part of the way that this axiom works, right? Is that sometimes it is about like, I want this dinner time to be over so I can get to the thing I'm looking forward to doing. Like sometimes it is an illegitimate use of my power that that I have to reckon with, right? So part of the axiom is like, I'm not always motivated 100% by my child's well-being. As a parent, sometimes I'm very selfish. And part of reckoning with power is, is asking those questions. Like, what, wait, why do I care about the green beans? You know, if it, is, if it truly is just about me, well, then the, my, I just repent. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, buddy. This is totally about me. You don't have to eat the green beans if you don't want to. It's fine. You know, but if it is a pattern, if there's something else at stake here, like, you know what, actually, we're like, you do need to learn how to eat well. Well, then we can then we can deal with that as well. But I think that's part of part of reckoning with our power is is learning the ways that we how easy it is when we have power to slip into the illegitimate use of that power for our own ends. It's just in small, small ways, but it's so easy to do. And and Jesus teaches us, I think to reckon with that and say, you know, and, and to repent, to turn away from that kind of use of power. Yeah, that's good. Hey, thanks, guys. This was good. Yeah, uh, Shane, this has been great talking to you, man. Uh, it's good just to, sometimes I feel like uh, when I record a podcast with somebody I know, it's just an excuse for like an appointment to hang out and see people mm-hmm. you like, you know? Right. So I appreciate the chance to just see you and chat with you and, um, yeah, I just encourage listeners if you're if you're intrigued or um, interested in what we've been talking about to pick up the book, "Having the Mind of Christ." We wrote it. Mm-hmm. We wrote it for people like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you would, if you are interested in the the process, you know, we talk about learning to recognize kairoses and finding the ways that God is at work in the concrete everyday moments of our lives. 
Uh, you can go to gravityleadership.com slash academy. It gives you some information about those cohorts that we run. Uh, we're always starting them. Um, try to start one every month or two. And so mm-hmm. if you're interested in that, we'd encourage you to check it out. There, I will I will testify. It's incredibly helpful, been transformative for me, and uh, been super transformative for me to take that back to my church and lead other other groups um, through it to kind of have a shared language. And when we talk and we can say, Hey, what's, um, what's the bad news there and what's the good mm-hmm. news. And that's been tremendously helpful for us. So well, that's encouraging super everybody. encouraging for us to hear. Yeah. Shane. Good that's, to hear. that's so good. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on guys. Mm-hmm. Great to be with you, bro. An honor. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Remember, you can find all the show notes for this show and all shows at shaneblackshear.com. Oh, and hey, have you ever thought about starting your very own podcast? I bet you have. And I think you should do it. In fact, I've created a course just for you to teach you everything that I've learned over the last couple of years producing Seminary Dropout. So if you're interested in podcasting and want to learn how, Go check out my course. You can go there by typing in podcastingforeveryone.org. And you can get a special discount by typing in the discount code Seminary Dropout, all one word. That'll give you 25% off. So go check it out. If you have any questions, let me know. Okay. Thanks to those that left ratings and reviews on iTunes this week. Remember, that keeps the show front and center. Also, remember, you can find me on Twitter at at beard on a bike that's at beard on a bike also i'm on facebook facebook.com slash shane blackshear one two three and remember that seminary dropout is listener supported you can visit support dropout.com and press become a patron Remember, this music you're listening to right now is by D.L. Rossi. You can find him online on iTunes and at dlrossi.com. All right. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Love you. Take care. Yeah, my best. I owe.